the blessing of the evening is for us to be able to again assemble as we've done and to appreciate the worship to the great God of heaven. It's already been a blessed opportunity for us to come together, and I certainly hope that as we give some attention to questions and answers, that that will continue to be true and continue to be descriptive of certainly what would not only be a glorification to God, but would be certainly an edification to you and to me. As you know, already by way of the uh, wall behind me, we are going to give thought tonight to the 10th installment this year of our questions and answers. We try to do this on average about once a month, certainly prompted by the questions that you make available, those that you submit. And I'm always very thankful and happy that you do that and make good use of that little box out there in the foyer. So if you have questions or comments or perhaps particular matters that you would wish to be a part of a lesson or otherwise, just share it in that way. And it's a convenient way for you to communicate that to me. Certainly, if you would wish to do that directly in person, that certainly would be fine as well. I always like to make the, the observation that uh, none of the questions that are asked are mine. That is to say, I always allow them to be those that you have asked, issues that you have raised, and that will be true this evening as we turn our attention to question number one. As usual, I try to read these as closely to the wording that was expressed as, as possible so that if I misunderstand that in any way, if you would uh, kindly make note of that to me. Question number one, is forgiveness possible without repentance? A very good question. Again, is it possible to experience forgiveness without repentance? There are several passages in the Bible that will offer some guidance on that point. The first one is perhaps to note at the top. The answer to the question is no. But now, of course, let's provide some biblical guidance to help make sure we appreciate that truth. First of all, consider the, the issue of offenses between human beings. Perhaps you or me and someone else. Can you or I receive forgiveness without ever expressing any repentance to the person whom we've offended? In Luke 17 verse 3, Jesus put it in these words. Again, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother sin, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. Now, you'll notice the Lord used the little word if in light of the latter part of that verse. If he repents, you forgive him. Now, there's no hint in that passage that one can exhibit or express or manifest the reality of forgiveness without the necessary company of repentance. Now, you and I should be aware of the fact that, as we've often noted, repentance is this matter of, again, expressing a willful sorrow connected to what has been done, a realization of the decision that was made, and a desire to make the element of peace. Surely the grandeur and the greatness of peace will be exhibited when, of course, that repentance is extended. A desire to remake a powerful, harmonious relationship. Now you might notice, what about on the part of God? Will God exhibit, will He express forgiveness to us if we never repent? Well, again, the answer is no. Look, for instance, at the two verses I've asked you to note with me. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, remember those on the day of Pentecost. Here were people who had committed sin. Do you recall what Peter said? When they cried out, meaning, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. In other words, they already had believed. We note that from verse 37. 
That is to say, they knew exactly what they had done relative to Jesus the Christ. The next thing he said, you've got to repent. Now, thankfully, about 3,000 did so that day. We noticed there was a situation wherein the matter of repentance was required in order for, again, the forgiveness to be appreciated. Six chapters later, we see another example. This time, it was a Christian. That is to say, someone who was already a member of the body of Christ, who in fact participated in and went so far as to wish to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter confronted the gentleman, Simon, and told him, Your heart's not right. You may recall that Peter said you'd have to repent. Well, one more time, whether an alien sinner or whether a wayward child of God, both require repentance. At the bottom of that slide, you'll notice so many verses then remind us of the place of repentance. Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That scene in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Every human being everywhere to be right with God will have to repent. So our first question... I think we've used the Word of God to assist us with that. Well, let's look at the next one. Question number two of the evening. How do we know how to pronounce the proper names of the Bible, given that they were written in Hebrew or Greek, and we today, of course, speak English? A very good question, rather thoughtful question. Maybe you can appreciate what's being asked. We often encounter proper names in the Bible, whether it be the name of a person the name of a river, the name of a city or a mountain? How do we know how to pronounce them given that we speak English and those, of course, original names would have been written in another language such as Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek? Well, you'll notice on the slide it's certainly very vital for us to note every language has its alphabet. The English language has 26 letters, for example, in its alphabet, from A all the way to Z. And of course, you and I, in as much as we speak English, we know how to sound out those letters. We know how to pronounce them. We know, quite frankly, the kind of sounds that go with each letter. Well, that's certainly true of the other languages as well. For example, the Greek language has 24 letters in its alphabet. The first letter is alpha. The last letter is omega. And even the Bible makes reference to them, doesn't it, in the book of Revelation. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 1, verse 8. Well, to say that is to also note this. We know how the pronunciation of the sounds with those particular letters are in fact to be made. So we know what the letter Alpha it would have sounded like. We know the sound that went with that letter. We know the sound that went with the letter Omega, or yea, any of the other letters of the alphabet. Now, I might say, in addition to that, though, this ought to be noted. We do not know the pronunciation that, in many cases, went with the, the syllables that went with those letters. In other words, in English, you and I know that where you place the accent in a given word will make a difference in the way it's pronounced. We remember that in school. If the accent's on the first part, it'll sound differently, for instance, than if the accent's on another one of the parts of the letter. Well, that's also true in Greek. 
So that leads me to say this, as you'll notice on that slide. As you look at the various letters, again, we know how they would have sounded. But depending on where the emphasis or the accent would have been, that certainly could make a difference in the way it would have been pronounced. I did want to give you an example in Acts 8.13. If you'll turn to that chapter, we notice some proper names occurring in the wording of that verse. Acts chapter 8, verse 13. In English, the Bible reads that verse like this. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued to Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. You'll notice two proper names in that verse. I've listed them on the third line of that, and I have written them in the, the Greek way that you would see them written. So in other words, if you actually resort to a Greek Bible and you look at the way Acts 8.13 reads, among the words that you would encounter would be those two. Now, unless you and I are familiar with the Greek alphabet, we likely would have not much of an idea what to do with those two words. If you'll look at the first one, you'll notice it consists of five letters. The first letter is what amounts to the capital letter S in our language of English. So that's pronounced very much like the letter S in our language. The next letter is what amounts to the letter I in our language. Now, it's the, the actual first letter is the letter sigma. That's the way you pronounce the Greek letter that is what is the cousin to our English letter S. The next one is iota. The third one is mu. The fourth one is omega. And finally, the last one is nu. Now, that's the names of the letters, but notice how similar they are. Sigma is S, I, uh, Iota is I, Mu is M, Omega is one of the letters pronounced like O. We actually had two of them. Finally, Nu is N. So that's the word Simon. Now, there's likely not much other way you could have pronounced any of the possible uh, syllables or accents to it, so... That's almost certainly the way that one would have sounded even back then. Now, the last letter, the last word I mentioned for you, notice, is the other proper name occurring in that verse. In English, it's the word Philip. Now, look at the way in which that one's written. You have, again, very different-looking words compared to the first one. That first letter is phi. Well, again, we sometimes use that even by appreciation of its connection to the letter P, but you'll notice you have other letters, all of which lead you to see again, that's the word Philip. How do we know how to pronounce them? I think it's fairly safe to say that the considerations of the sounds of those letters are very well known. Sometimes the accents, admittedly, can be placed in different places. And sometimes you and I might then differ a little bit on our pronunciation, but likely that won't be by, by very much. Question number three is this one. Many people today are choosing cremation rather than burial. What does the Bible have to say regarding cremation? You're probably well aware of the popularity that's come to be the, the current case as it relates to cremation. The person who asked the question has asked, does the Word of God say anything about cremation? Is it wrong to do that? Is it okay to do that? 
does the Bible offer any guidance, any evidence with respect to that particular topic or subject? I've listed for you several thoughts on the slide, and maybe by principle, we should begin like this. The human body is such that by decree of heaven, it proceeds to return to dust at the time of death. That is to say, once the spirit departs the body, that body which is left behind is said to be dead, James 2.26, and it proceeds to return to the dust out of which it's made. In many ways, that idea takes us back to Genesis 3.19. When in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had chosen to do what they did, namely to, to rebel against God, God said something to Adam. To him he said, By the sweat of thy brow, thy face, shalt thou eat bread, until thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. To return to dust. We've often noted, no doubt, that the human body is composed of the same chemical elements as dirt. So, when you think about silicon, oxygen, phosphorus, the other things that make up common ordinary dirt, that's what the body's made of. Now, I say that to say that God has decreed that it shall return into the dust out of which it's made. Now, to be sure, there are mechanisms or processes that can delay that returning to dust, but it's going to happen eventually. For example, we know the ancient Egyptians embalmed their bodies. So in the process of embalming, that body will remain in a recognizable state for a longer period of time, but it will eventually decay and return back to the nature of the dust out of which it's made. Today, of course, we still appreciate the characteristic of embalming. But I might say that not all cultures have been given to the process of embalming. And so on the slide, you'll note several things worthy of note. Does the Word of God make any specific statements about what ancient cultures and what ancient circumstances may have prevailed with regard to the bodies of those who were deceased? Well, without doubt, that which is mentioned most often is burial, like we just noted a moment ago. So I've listed just a few verses. Many, many more might have been listed. In Genesis 23, verse 19, Abraham sought a place to bury the body of Sarah. And you might recall that he purchased the cave of Machpelah. And there not only was she buried, but he was buried there somewhat later after he died. We well remember that Isaac was buried there. Rebekah was buried there. Jacob was buried there. Leah was buried there. Wherever that cave happened to be, you know, a lot of the illustrious people of the book of Genesis were buried there. He's not the only example. In Genesis 35, 19, we remember Rachel, his favorite wife, Jacob's favorite wife. She wasn't buried in Machpelah. She was buried just outside Bethlehem. But one more time, her body was buried. Maybe as another example, in Matthew 14, 12, to come into the heart of the New Testament, after John the Baptist's head was stricken from his body, his disciples came and retrieved his body and proceeded to bury it. Again, a note made of the process of burial. In Acts chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, the body of Ananias and of Sapphira both were buried. 
Jesus' body was buried, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. So I give those as just an example of a number of illustrations wherein burial was a particularly occurrent matter with regard to the bodies of the deceased. But what about this one? In 1 Samuel 31, 12, a very interesting observation is made. You might recall with me that upon the death of King Saul, remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. He was killed in that battle that's described in that chapter. And the Philistines are the ones who, in fact, had possession of his body. But we soon discover this. They, of course, presented the body in a public way as a bit of a token of their victory over Israel. But some people from Israel went and stole that body and proceeded to burn it. So the body of Saul was burned. Sounds a little bit like a cremation, doesn't it? So you'll notice Saul's body at least was burned. In 1 Kings 16, 18, we find the body of Zimri burned. Now interestingly enough, his body burned as in fact in the course of his death. He was in a particular palace, the palace that, that, that was his, and it burned and he died and he died actually in the fire. So the point that we might make is there's at least two examples of a body that was torched or burned. You might also notice there was those who were lost at sea. In other words, the Egyptians, of course, as the Red Sea came back on them in Exodus chapters 14 and 15, we notice that the Bible says that they died in the course of that. Some of the bodies, no doubt, must have washed ashore, as we do learn in chapter 15, but did all of them wash ashore? Perhaps not. Probably not. I list those as particular illustrations in which sometimes the specifics of death may not have involved burial. It may have involved burning. It may have involved something else. In that case of King Saul, the Bible gives no hint, no indication that what they did, namely burning his body, was unacceptable. It gave no hint that God disapproved of it. it. Gave no hint, in fact, that even the message of the prophets toward that end would have been anything other than what would have been somewhat, somewhat appropriate. Let me close this slide like this. I find nothing in the Bible that would say that cremation is wrong. I find nothing that would give a hint that that kind of decision or that kind of choice would in fact be something that would bring the wrath of God in any way. In fact, I might say, and this probably is the issue that some would wonder about, what's going to happen in the great morning of resurrection? When Jesus comes back, you'll notice that the Bible does say, all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. Well, what kind of grave might that be? Does that only refer to those that were buried? Or would that also refer to those who died by any mechanism and whose body may be in any case at that point in time? Well, based on the revelation, that surely would, would, surely would include all who died, no matter what way they died. Can you and I not say this? Our God is powerful enough to reconstitute whatever body he wants to be reconstituted. So if a person died and the body was buried, but maybe that burial happened thousands and thousands of years ago, as was the case of those who died in the book of Genesis, 
then with the thought that in the morning of resurrection there is going to be a body provided to all and that body will be fit for eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. You and I know God is able to present, to bring together the elemental matters to make that body as He would wish it to be regardless. Whether that body happened to be cremated, whether it happened to be buried, or whether it would have in fact decomposed in some other way. And so the Bible does not condemn the practice of what you and I would recognize as cremation. Question number four. Are there any precursors in the Old Testament to water baptism in the New Testament? Why would it be expected that the Jews would be receptive to water baptism? Isn't that an interesting question? Again, to perhaps phrase it slightly differently. We know that there were many particulars in the Old Testament that served in some way as a type of what would later become some matter in the New Testament. I've listed a couple of examples. The Passover, for example. Well, you and I remember that noteworthy event that, again, the Jews celebrated every year. And you and I well recall that they placed blood on the doorpost. They placed it on the lintel. And they were told... When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Exodus 12, verse 13. And so that came to be a recognition of what the New Testament would describe like this. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Jesus is our Passover. So here's a concept that had a rich Old Testament history, but it all pointed to the reality of a New Testament matter in Jesus. Many other examples like that could be listed. The question for this that's noted here is, what about baptism? We know it's a vital part of the New Testament. Was there anything in the Old Testament era that at least was a type of what you and I would recognize today as baptism in the New Testament era? It would seem to me, and I will be interested to know what your thoughts on this at some point might be, but it would seem to me that the closest we come is in the matter of what occurred concerning the laver, which was placed just outside the tabernacle in the Old Testament era. So rehearse the scene with me. God gave order that they were to construct a tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 to 40. God specified the furniture. He specified where that furniture was to be placed. I think we've all been impressed. They did not even get to place the furniture where they wanted. God told them where to put it. He told them how to construct the furniture. He told them how to overlay it. He told them how it was to be carried. Everything He specified. But one piece of furniture was this. It was known as a laver. It was positioned just outside the tabernacle between the tabernacle's entrance and the altar of burnt offering. God was very specific about that laver. Every priest that entered into the tabernacle had to wash in that, la- in that labor before entering. Isn't that an interesting significance? There was something to be noted about their washing in that labor. Now consider what might be noted. We later see in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 some references to the washing. And you and I know that would have occurred in the labor. But now on that slide, consider this. We know that the holy place in the tabernacle was a prefigured type of the church of our day. We know that because of Hebrews chapter 9. 
the ninth chapter of Hebrews at least points out the beauty of that comparison. Consider it. We today, as the church, reside, if you please, in the holy place. Again, as that's described for us, consider, what about entrance into that body? Well, you and I know one only enters the church in baptism. That's the only way the New Testament ever designs it. The only way it ever describes it. We're baptized into the body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And yet, entrance into that tabernacle only occurred as they washed in the laver. Water was used in both. Entrance into the tabernacle on the one hand, the church on the other is involved. The appreciation that with who could enter, remember, only the priest could enter the holy place. But you and I today are called priests in 1 Timothy 2, or rather 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9. It would thus seem that the laver and the water contained in it were the closest now, one difference, of course, might be noted to be this. They didn't submerge themselves in that laver. It wasn't big enough for that. Rather, they took water out of it and used it for the process of washing. Now, God has specified in the New Testament that burial is what is to take place in baptism, Romans 6, verse 4. And thus, we appreciate at least that difference in the mode of it. But the significance seems to have a lot in common. Question number five. Question five reads as follows. Will we be doing anything in heaven besides singing and praising God? That's another thoughtful question, isn't it? What will we be doing when we get to heaven? I think most of us, as we consider our life here in the flesh, we have a lengthy to-do list seemingly almost every day. And certainly it seems on a weekly basis, to say the very least. And yet as we think about getting to heaven, that's going to be permanent. We're never going to leave and we're going to enjoy that place for the ceaseless ages of eternity. Are we going to be singing for the full duration of that time? Will we be praising God all of those moments? Very good question. Consider some of the thoughts on this slide. First of all, could I invite you to note this? We do know for sure that heaven is going to be a place beyond our fullest capacity now to appreciate. We do know it's a place of no sorrow, a place of no crying, a place of no death, a place of no tears due to anything that relates to sadness. Revelation 21.4 makes that statement very clear. Beyond that, we can also say this. God has always had chores, tasks, duties, if you will, for individuals, for, for spirits to do. That was true in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, even before, of course, the, the matters of their, their foolish choice, they were told to dress and to keep the garden. It would appear that there was something about maintaining the cleanliness, the order, whatever may have been involved in that, they were told to dress it and keep it. Genesis 2.15. May I also say, even the angels have tasks that He expects them to complete. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. That is to say, there's a work that they're given, work that they're expected to do. I mention all of that to say, you and I have work while we're here on earth. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
again in the words of Philippians 2, verses 12 to 15. Now let's put all that back together and say this. We do know there will be singing in heaven, Revelation 15, 3. We do know that there will be praising of God, Revelation 19, verses 7 and following. We know that. Will there be any additional kinds of service? It appears the answer is yes. I say that based on Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. There, there is a reference to service to God. It is phrased in such a way that it makes one at least consider that it's not merely singing and it's not merely praising. Beyond that, I do not know anything else to say. That text doesn't say what the service is. It does not elaborate in any detail beyond that. I'm then going to simply say this. It appears to me, and take that for no more than what that's worth, but it appears that through all those ceaseless ages of eternity, God will ensure that the particular state in which we are, there is complete satisfaction because in heaven there will be no boredom. Revelation 21, 27. Whatever state that's going to be, everything's going to be taken care of. I don't think we have to worry the slightest about becoming less than satisfied, in any way inadequate, in any way disillusioned or bored. It's just not going to happen. We will be serving God throughout all the wonderful ages that there's going to be, and they shall be without number. Question number six. Does the devil know our thoughts? Does he know what's in our heart? Isn't that a good question? You always seem to ask such thoughtful questions, and there are times when I'm happy to say I do not know. I do believe, though, we can at least make some comments about this one. First of all, might we embed in our thinking this truth, the devil is not omniscient. Now, I use that fancy word because quite often the sense is what we appreciate. God is omniscient. He knows our thoughts. He knows the future. He knows the past. There's nothing you and I can do that He does not know. Psalm 139 even says He knows our thoughts. So even if we never say anything, if we never act on anything, He already has known what was in our mind. The person who asked this question asked, Is the devil like that? Does he know our thoughts, even if we never express it? The answer is no. He is not omniscient like God is. He is not all-powerful like God is. He is not omnipresent like God is. Keep in mind, there are certain verses like these. Do you recall that the text on one occasion with regard to Jesus says, "...the devil left him for a season." Now, that directly teaches the devil is not everywhere at the same time. He's not. Furthermore, in the book of Job, you might recall that, it says that the devil, Satan, came in to appear before the sons of God. Well, again, he wasn't there before he came. The devil is not everywhere at the same time. He is not like God that way. He's not all-present. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. So the short answer to this question is no. He does not know our thoughts the same way God does. But let's at least try to put a few more thoughts to that. You may notice about the middle of that slide. It is true that he's clever, he is subtle, 
and he can observe human behavior. I would submit that that's perhaps one of the keenest appreciations of the devil. He is a grand student of the human family. He knows our tendencies. He does know what God's will is, and he knows what our tendencies are that will lead us to disobey God. Again, he's a keen student of the human frame. But to know our thoughts, he does not unless we express them in some direct way because He then can become aware of them. You'll note near the bottom of that slide in 2 Corinthians 2 as well as 2 Corinthians 11, there are certain things about the devil. He's described as clever, as subtle. And it's also noted that he can, in fact, transform himself into an angel of light. He can appear, you see, by the things he urges upon us to be very noble and very kindly and very godly, when in fact he's not. Does he know our thoughts? He doesn't. Several times in the Word of God, we notice he acts in a way, and you'll notice there are times it seems very clear that he did not know what was going to happen. Have you ever thought about the crucifixion of Jesus that way? If the devil had known that in the death of Christ... Actually, the Christ's triumph over him would be the result. Surely he would never allow Jesus to die the way he did. Now, we know he attempted, in fact, to bruise the Lord. Genesis 3.15 had told us that. But nonetheless, Satan carried out the death, you see, through the agency of both the Jews and the Romans, and that ultimately led to Satan's own defeat. Hebrews 2.14 The devil does not know our thoughts. Question number seven. Greg, if you'd change the slide for me, I'd appreciate it. Question number seven. Had the apostles in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark 16, verses 14 and following, not been baptized at this point? How does Mark 16, 15 not say that anyone who is believing and baptized would have the power mentioned in verses 17 and 18. Why don't we read those verses to make sure we appreciate what the person who asked the question has in mind. Turn to Mark 16, please, if you would. Since the person who asked the question mentioned verse 14, let's begin reading there. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, and shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now that reading through verse 18 has clearly mentioned some very intriguing matters that the querist has mentioned in the wording of this question. First of all, the person has noted in verse 14, there's reference to the apostles. Had they been baptized at this point? Good question. Then the person goes on to ask, if they had been, 
then what does this say about verses 17 and 18? Does it, this then promise that every person who was a baptized believer, that they would then be able to do what verses 17 and 18 say? And note again what that says. They'll be able to speak with tongues. They'll be able to cast out devils. They'll be able to take up serpents. They'll be able to drink any deadly thing and it won't hurt them. So the person is asked a very thoughtful question. Does that apply to us today? In the directness of some in eastern Kentucky who will bring out a box of rattlesnakes and pass that around in the worship. If that applies, should we be doing this? Can we drink some arsenic in the service of the Lord and anticipate that somehow we won't die from it? What about speaking in tongues? Is that then promise that this should be a sign to you and to me if we claim to be baptized believers? You notice on the slide, had the apostles been baptized at this point, the wording of Mark 16 occurs, of course, prior to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. We notice in that chapter there is the proclamation and the setting forth of repent and be baptized. At this point, you and I notice that Jesus, of course, had died by this point. You'll also notice He had been resurrected. So could it be that prior to this point, maybe, there was an insistence in their baptism? They certainly might have been. After all, the Lord had already shed His blood. And it could well be that as preparation for the day of Pentecost, maybe they had been. But whether they had or whether, the, whether they had not certainly leads us to note this. What about the implication of the second part of that for all of those who would be believers in days that would be in the future? Might we take note that verses 15 and 16 are these blanket statements about what the message was to be that those apostles was to preach and the message that would accompany the new covenant. The need for belief and baptism and that those who would not do this would, of course, be doomed. Now, as far as verses 17 and following, could I ask you to notice that these miraculous gifts certainly were vital matters of that day and time. But it's such that notice that it was not a promise for all believers of all time. And we know that because of the way the chapter ends. Look at verse 20. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. In that day, with the confirmation of the word and the, important, the importance that went with that, may I suggest that the miraculous matter was a vital part for several decades, surely. But after the word had been confirmed, there was no longer the need for those miraculous agents and they passed away under the banner of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I would say that that thought, though, reappears really in Acts chapter 2. May I at least invite your attention to verse 38? That's a verse we often use and think about with such power. It reads again as follows. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And it's fairly easy for us to highlight the, the character of that verse, but I might notice I have not completed it. It goes on to say this, Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What gift was he talking about? 
Are you and I today still receiving the miraculous gifts of 1 Corinthians 12? And there are nine of them that are listed, such as tongues, faith, prophecy, faith, the interpretation of prophecy, and on, and on the list goes. I might point out that even on the day of Pentecost, notice that there was a requirement concerning the obedience to the faith, and that involved repentance and baptism. There was for those of that day, though, the additional presence before the word was confirmed that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We learn from Acts chapter 8 how that gift was transferred. It was by the laying on of the hands of an apostle. It didn't come any other way. They couldn't pray for it. It could not come as they desired it. It was given as an apostle laid his hands upon those individuals who were baptized. They then could receive those gifts. And that's what's discussed in Acts 2 verse 38 at the very end. They would receive those gifts. It's mentioned again in chapter 10, by the way, verses 44 to, to, to in fact, verse 48. But with that particular question, the age of miracles no longer is with us. An inspired penman told us that in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 and 9. And so, those signs that are attached in Mark 16, verses 17 and 18, once the Word was confirmed, the need for that passed. And thus, the, cap the capacity for it did too. As we close our lesson tonight, with one final conclusion slide. We've looked at seven questions this evening. Thoughtful questions, excellent questions, questions that have challenged us to ponder some of that which the Word of God has shared concerning it. But surely we would be in a position to say this. The greatest question of all is, what must I do to be saved? It may be that in this assembly tonight, someone, maybe upon recognition of the state of your life, has come to realize that all is not well with your soul and you need to do that which the Lord commands. As a person who has never obeyed the gospel initially, you need to take care of that at once. Believe in the Lord, won't you? Repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. As the Bible makes that command, it then states that in so doing, you are welcomed into a status of being saved, being redeemed, being forgiven. And you're able to walk faithfully through this life. But you might choose not to do that. You may choose to behave in a way that will bring reproach upon the Lord's name, upon His church, upon that for which He stands. If you'd like to take care of that by getting it forgiven tonight, we certainly would be honored to assist you. If you'll acknowledge it in confession and repent of it, it'll also be forgiven. Tonight, as we stand and sing this hymn in just a moment, we'll invite you to come, and we would wish you to let us know the way we can help. And we would urge you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.